you lose. You know, I'm not saying that I won every day. You can't, you can't own a successful anything unless you learn how to lose. Yeah. If you can learn how to lose, then you will be a winner. Eventually, you will learn how to win, and that's what I did, and it started at a very young age. This week on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's Diaries of a Lodge Owner, we get to know this outstanding chef and wildly successful entrepreneur. He cooks for the stars and everyone it takes to produce hit series like Suits, Shits Creek, and he fueled the cast and crew for the movie Pompeii with the most outstanding food in the industry, and so many more. This world-renowned man of mystery is also host of the Eating Wild podcast, which is part of our Outdoor Journal Network. He's an amazing outdoorsman, father, and just all-around awesome guy. Chef Antonio Smash Maleka. On this show, we dig down to Antonio's roots, find out where he came from, his struggles, and ultimately his success. Gourmet craft and catering. With 26 state-of-the-art mobile kitchens, his team services the stars, along with the film and movie industry as a whole. So if you love the outdoors, food, and famous people, you don't want to miss getting to know Chef Antonio Smash Maleka. Here's my conversation with Chef Antonio. Hey folks, Steve here, Diaries of a Lodge Owner, and I've got uh, Smash Maleka. Antonio Smash Maleka of Eating Wild. And uh, Antonio is a, is a partner, and uh, I'm uh, so proud and happy to have him on here. His show is absolutely outstanding, and both of us are, are under the uh, Outdoor Journal Radio Podcast Network's uh, umbre- network umbrella. And um, and uh, it's been such a great ride so far. Antonio, welcome to the show, buddy. Oh, buddy, Steve, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, it's a pleasure being on your show. I got to admit, I'm a huge fan of your show. I've been listening to it. And uh, it's uh, something that I got to say was such a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, if you tune into the Eating Wild podcast with uh, myself, Hookset, and uh, Top Dog, lodging. We talk about lodging all the time. This podcast couldn't be more perfect for us to listen to. And uh, we're, we're all big fans of it, brother. We're happy to be a part of your team. Oh, thanks, buddy. I know it's uh, it's wonderful, and and um, your podcast as well. I I thoroughly enjoy it, and and I love the recipes. I love the incorporation of the outdoors and cooking because it's something that I've always done from, you know, hunting deer and, and, um, preparing venison and, and moose and, and, and all of the fish, you know, walleye and Northern Pike and owning the lodge and, and doing shore lunches and everything else. So like, I mean, it, it's such an awesome show, but, um, I think today I would just like to, to dig into your past a little bit and get to know Antonio. Absolutely, man. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny what, where, where it brings you to the present day, but, uh, yeah, like I, I, uh, basically started out as a, uh, you know, culinary was, was always my thing since I was 16 years old. Did you go to school for it? You know what? It's, that's a great question. And a lot of people ask me that question after they eat my food. And I was actually brought up through restaurants hotels and owning my own restaurant and that was for me 
um, more lesson learning, more, um, more, I guess the word is, I can't even think of the word, but I think, more impactful. I think yeah, I think it, it got me more uh, intrigued in the actual art of culinary. Um, you know, when you go into cooking schools these days, and I'm not saying I have nothing against cooking schools. I think you get more, you learn more on the line. It's like being thrown, thrown in the deep end. You're going to learn how to swim right away. Cause if you don't, you're not going to survive. And when I was 16 years old, I had my first job was at a fish and chip shop. And I'll never forget it. The, it was in a plaza where my dad's hair salon, my dad owned a hair salon for 40 years. And it was in the, the Etobicoke, Ontario area. And yeah. uh, as I was going as a kid to get my hair cut, my dad used to throw me some bucks and say, hey, go over to the chip and fish and chip shop, grab yourself some fries. <laughs> you know, you're going to wait for me to finish work and we're going to go home. Well, I'm 16 years old. I walk in and and I'll never forget these, you know, Paul and Elaine. They were like, uh, man, they were my mentors. Uh, you know, they took me in as 16 years old. I started learning how to chip French fries um and blanching french fries you know you got to start somewhere yeah and uh you know i stayed there for for the whole summer um went back to high school and you know i worked there part-time on the weekends and i actually just fell in love with it and it wasn't fish and chips that i fell in love with it was cleaning the fish they would teach me hands-on i was 16 17 years old learning how to fillet 400 pound halibuts that no came way. Block, blocked off into 60 pound to 50 to 60 pound frozen fillets um you know that that came from all seas fisheries and you know i learned how to literally take that thing apart and she to this day if, if uh we've ever talked she said you know somebody at your age i would never would have thought would be able to learn or actually want to learn how to take apart that fish and fillet it. And, you know, we were doing six ounce portioning at the time and we used all the bones. We used every part of that fish for stock, for soups, for the chowder, whatever it was. So I learned at a, at a really young age and, and it actually, I fell in love with it. And I think when, you know, when you asked me about the schooling, um, that was my school. That was yeah. everything that I wanted to do. And when I finished high school, it was like you had two options. You go to culinary school, you got to sit through all the bullshit of watching some dude with a knife teaching you how to make a mirepoix. Yep. Um, or I can go back into the industry that I've been working in for the last three, four years and accelerate and learn yeah. more and soak it in. And at the end of the day, get a paycheck. That's so the thing. You're not paying them. They're paying you. They're paying me. And, and I mean, back then it was, you know, I think it was like nine bucks an hour. And, um, you know, I was living at home and, uh, I just wanted to learn more and I just soaked it all in. And, and I, that were, that's where my culinary journey began. That's awesome. That's awesome. So listen, I've got a question. How many fish and chip restaurants today mm -hmm. are bringing in full sized fish, like two, 300 pound halibut or whatever, and are processing them in the back. Because I always assumed when I go to a fish and chip shop that they're just buying portions from Flanagan's and they're dropping them in the fryer and, and selling them. That's a, that's a great question. And I'm going to be honest with you, they don't do it anymore. And, and there is a few reasons why, uh, one is the labor. Yeah. Um, you know, if you own a fish and chip shop and you're there every single day and you want to buy blocked off halibut, you're going to save probably six, seven dollars a pound. But then you're, you're, you know, you got to compensate the labor. 
So if, if I'm the owner and I'm the only one that knows how to take apart this fish and there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of waste. And that's what an owner will tell you. If it's not done properly and you're not skimming those that you, you don't know what you're doing. You're going to lose a lot of meat. You're probably going to throw half of it in the garbage and not know what to do with it. So I think that's where, you know, owners these days are buying portion controlled items that they get a hundred percent yield out of. So, you know, like, um, the one fish and chip shop that I go to, I only, you know, usually go to fish and chip shops now on good Fridays, you know, being Italian, we, uh, that's been our tradition. Um, they use a product that's made by Fleischensen's. And it's basically a portioned halibut and you can get it in, I believe, 16 ounce fillets. So when you're thinking of a 16 ounce fillet, you know, you portion that up into, you know, four to five ounces. What are you selling that halibut at? Because halibut's expensive. And for me, if I'm owning that shop because of my talent, I could take apart that halibut myself and I'm going to save six, seven dollars a pound. So that means for every three people that walk in to buy your portion halibut, that one piece is going to be 100% profit because I, I took it apart myself. Yeah. But I would say most likely 90% of the fish and chip shops are buying portioned. And you think the portioned, the quality is the same? I think it is. I yeah. mean, uh, Spanish halibut has been what I turn to, especially during COVID when we were doing, geez, we were, we were cooking for, um, two, 300 people a day on uh, a show called American Gods. It was the only show that was allowed to work through COVID because we were able to get tested every day. Um, they brought in a full out team and it was safe and we were able to work. And um, when I, with my catering, I go to three or four different types of fish because I like to keep it fresh, but we're in, you know, we're in Ontario. Yeah. So you got your, you got trout and you got, salmon yeah um and then your seafood if it's coming from pi it's usually fresh um but i would always go to halibut because people love it sure and um man was it expensive and i was buying spanish halibut because it was the cheapest product but i gotta be honest it was one of the best i've ever used 16 ounce portions after you trim it with the tail and, and so on you could feed three people with it um but you're still at four or five bucks a person yeah um you know your cost so I believe that if I were to, um, you know, think about long term, if I was bringing in blocked, you know, blocked portions, I would probably save a bunch of money. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So um, now that you're you you worked in the fish and chip spot, um, you kind of alluded, and and a lot of people already know that um, you cook for a lot of high profile people. Yeah. But I want to kind of figure out how you got there. So yeah. now you're in the, you're in the, uh, 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 the fish and chip shop and, and, uh, you're learning your trade, you're cutting your teeth. And by the way, I believe that, um, more and more today, uh, I think that, um, people are going to find success much quicker and maybe not need to go to school, but actually learn, uh, on the job. Exactly. Um, yeah. uh, and that's a good point because, you know, if you think about, trades you know there we need so many tradesmen out there um you know they're putting people to work right away it's yeah. like you know you're a painter hey come to work with me grab a grab your lunch box and let's go i'm going to show you how to paint and i'm yeah. going to pay you um again I, i'm not here to to say that education isn't the way to go um but i mean for me my path obviously was to 
get involved early. And that's where I found my passion. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it and takes you're so me- much further ahead. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you got to love what you do. Um, yeah. There's, there's, everything is money driven. And I feel like if you, you know, people, when they're deciding on their careers, you know, if you're a, an athlete and you have talent, you know, you're going to make millions of dollars because, you know, you, you're, you're a, a basketball player, hockey player, whatever it is you do, yeah. and you're going to get paid well for it. You're a professional athlete. Now, a lot of these athletes, you know, their careers end 30, 32 years old, you're considered an old guy. Well, <laughs> yeah. you, you think about it and, and, you know, you have that window of between 19 and 29 to 30 years old before people think you're this old guy. Well, what are you going to fall back on? Sure. You probably made a bunch of money and maybe you're one of those extreme uh, talents that got paid very, very well, where you can just now invest your money and you're good to go. But I think it all comes down to the love for it. Yeah. And the hardest thing that I think people have that aren't successful with um, professional being a professional athlete is, is that they can't deal with not that's all they know. Yeah. You know, it's like you're 25 years old and you didn't make the cut. You, you tried to make the NHL, but you weren't good enough. So now you're going to be playing in Europe for, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, you know what you can, you can become a carpenter and make a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars a year. And you can be a carpenter a lot older and longer than, exactly than that. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. hundred so percent. I, I do believe it comes with passion. If you love, if you love it and you want to get started early, um, then that's what I did. And jump uh, in. then you jump right into it and you, you'll become successful if you want to be, it depends on how hard you want to work at it. hundred percent. It's, it's all, um, if you set goals and you have the, the belief in yourself that you can do it, there's nothing that can stop you. Right. You just, you just set your mind to it and you do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So now you're working in the, you're in the chip and uh, fish and chip place. Yep. What's the next progression for Antonio? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it was uh, right away, um, Steve, I, 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 I'm not sure how this, if this happened with yourself or not when you jumped into your, your business, but right away I had this vision. And it was like, I want to learn how to be the best chef in the world. And I want to do this on my own. And I'm not talking fish and chips. I, I wanted to have a restaurant. I wanted to serve people. I had this, you know, I had this vision of owning this, this restaurant that had live music and oysters. And, you know, I was so into, you know, like, the jazz of the whole, yeah. you know, the saxophone player playing or a pianist going, and then you're, we're serving cocktails and we got good looking waiters and good looking waitresses and yeah. everyone's sitting at their table and they're spending $20 on a martini. You know what I mean? I had this crazy vision. And you were like the, was, the, 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 the guy running the orchestra. Exactly. You yeah. were the man. I was in the kitchen and I was making sure that every person that, that got a plate got punched in the face with flavor. And that yeah. was exactly what I wanted to do. And it didn't happen. That's not what happened. I'm not going there. <laughs> I, that's what I was visualizing. You know, you make a vision board and that's, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Um, but I actually um, did get into the restaurant business quite early. My, um, my wife. So I, I've been with Andrea, my wife now, since we were in grade 12, since we were kids. Yeah. And um you know, we got engaged at quite a young age and her family owns a pizzeria franchise in the GTA, uh, Pizziolo, which is a, now it's beginning to be a, a great 
pizzeria for people to get fast food at. Yeah. And uh, I remember her brother, Steve, was already working at a pizzaiolo. He's a few years older than me. And he was working at a pizzaiolo uh, on Queen Street downtown. And um, one day he says, you know, you got to come over and check out this pizzeria and check out the food and this and that. And I drove out one day to Queen Street to visit my brother-in-law. And it hit me. It, I looked around and it was like, you know, my heritage being Italian and seeing these beautiful pizzas coming out of the oven and the smell and the aroma and the cheese yeah. and everything about it. I was like, oh, my God, this is like incredible. And, um, you know, Steve said to me, hey, man, do you think that um, we'd be able to, you know, do this together and have our own store? And, uh, you know, you could come here and train. I'll train you. My cousin's the franchisor. Yeah. Uh, we can have our own location. I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 20s. Like, I'm, I'm still, you know, like a baby. And it hit me right there. It wasn't the vision on my vision board, but it was a stepping stone. A stepping stone. And it, it happened. Like, like Steve and I ventured out into this this pizza business this restaurant and it just made me fall in love more with the business side of things not only you know the cooking which was the bonus in my opinion but the actual business aspect watching your customers come in and it's like you know hey i'm a local this and that and let's have an espresso let me have a slice of pizza let, let me make you a veal sandwich you know what Pasta is not on the menu, but I'm going to make you pasta for lunch today because that customer comes in every single day yeah. and spends two, three dollars on a on a coffee or ten dollars on a slice of pizza with a drink. Whatever it was, I gravitated to that part of the business so quickly that it was it was actually um, more for me financially. Um, successful because I had the love for the business as much as I did for the food. And I think with yourself listening to your podcast, when you had the Shajir Lodge, you fell in love with not only the business, but you fell in love with the entertainment aspect, you know, yeah. making people smile, putting fish on their lines, making sure they come in for a beautiful lunch, dinner, listening to you wail away on the guitar while you're holding a pint by the bonfire. Those are all the aspects that make you fall in love with the business. Not only the passion, forget the passion. Yeah. I love to cook no matter what, but it made me more successful watching the people enjoy, enjoy. it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I lost, like you lose, you know, I'm not saying that I won every day. You can't, you can't own a successful anything unless you learn how to lose. Yeah. If you can learn how to lose, then you will be a winner. Eventually, you will learn how to win. And that's what I did. And it started at a very young age. Very cool. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's um, for me and obviously for you, it's, it's, it's about the experience you're giving to people and right. watching people enjoy that experience, whether it's eating the pizza that you just made for them, the espresso or, or, the 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 smile that you put on your face the first time they catch a big fat walleye right. or when they're on a shore lunch and you know billy the billy command my awesome guide is bent over the uh the the massive frying pan and his <laughs> ass crack is hanging out and it's a, and 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 that becomes a whole thing 
There were people that came that wanted to come and go out with Billy just to take a picture of his ass crack again this year. Steve, look what I got. I got a picture of Billy's ass crack. <laughs> oh, this is 2017, 2015. <laughs> look, right? That's it's just, awesome. It's just the experience. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So now I got to ask you. Yep. How did you how did you get into a position where you become as as successful as you are right now and the the people that that you've met and and you've cooked for yep. like I mean um how did you get there That's a that's a great question and and it's uh it was quite the journey um you know like I I mentioned to you just just a minute ago uh, I lost you know, unfortunately, the business didn't um, um, go as well as Steve and I wanted. Um, being in being in a franchise is a lot different than being a sole prioritor of a business. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not throwing you know the company under the bus or anything, but it just wasn't successful for many reasons. That it's very hard being a small business owner. And, you know, you got a, a franchise that has, you know, franchise fees and, you know, you got to purchase certain items. And anyways, it was very hard to be profitable. Yeah. And especially when you have two young guys like Steve and myself, um, you know, we, we couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't, we couldn't crack the code of being successful uh, as a, as a franchisee um, for a small takeout restaurant. And I had ideas and I had things I wanted to do. But you're you're handcuffed, you know. Yeah. If you if you op- if you purchase a McDonald's, well, you're making the Big Mac, you know. Yeah. You're, you're not making an Antonio Mac. Like you you <laughs> yeah. got to follow, you know. You got to follow the 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 proper um, guidelines of the other yeah. procedure, the the franchise. And I, I struggled with that, um, and and that's me being hard headed because I was you know a cook or a chef, however you want to call it, and I wanted to do certain things that kind of held me back. So um, you know it didn't work out. And I was off. I was off work. I went and helped my brother. Um, he has an irrigation company. And uh, he's like, you know, you need work. He's my brother. He's like, you're going to come work with me. And that was great. I went with my brother for the summer. Um, and in the wintertime came, I had nothing. I, I had nothing going on. My wife and I, um, previously to the Pizziolo um, failure, I would call it. Yeah. Um, we tried our own. We tried opening our own restaurant in um, Streetsville, Ontario. And again, it was very hard to be successful. It was a lot of work. I was young. And I had a guy walk into the restaurant with a basically a blank check and said, I need this location. Um, I want to open up a shawarma shop. And uh, I'm looking to purchase this. This is the location I want. And I looked at my wife. I said, look, you know, we don't own a house. We were living at my in-laws. And this could be a possibility for us to take some money and put a down payment on a home. So you owned that building that you we, were, that you we, uh, had the pizzeria in? Yeah. So we were, yes, in Streetsville. Yeah. And uh, this guy ended up purchasing um, our business. And it wasn't for a huge amount of money, but it got yeah. me almost out of debt uh, still from Pizza Yolo, and also got me a down payment for a home, and it was awesome. You know, yeah. I, I I felt like it was you know it was successful only because we um, we didn't make tons of money at when the restaurant was open, but we made some money because we set it up um, for somebody to purchase. Yeah, and it was great. It worked out great. So you know, fast forward, 
I got a bit of money. We're waiting for our house to be built. I'm living at my in-laws and my sister-in-law calls me up and says, Hey, she's like, uh, uh, you're a fan of dumb and dumber. And uh, the movie, <laughs> I said, I'm absolutely, she knew we were fans of dumb and dumber. Yeah. We always, we always have, uh, we, we always have quotes <laughs> from the movie and we're, you know, we're, we were kind of crazy stupid. Yeah. And um, she says, well, uh, Lauren Holly, who plays uh, Mary Swanson in the movie, yeah. uh, Jim, Jim Carrey's ex-wife actually, uh, is filming at a, uh, a restaurant, uh, filming a movie at a restaurant in Hamilton. And uh, the restaurant was owned by her, at the time, her boyfriend's father. And she's like, we got to go there. We're going to take a copy of the movie and uh, we're going to uh, get it signed and we're going to go meet Lauren Holly. So I was all pumped up and me and my sister-in-law went for a drive. We went to see her, her boyfriend and the father. And, and um, when we arrived at the restaurant, I noticed this cube truck outside the restaurant and people were going in and out of this cube truck. And I'm like, like what's going on in that truck? Like, you could smell like yeah. the coffee aroma. There was something being cooked out of this truck. And uh, I, I, I wandered over and uh, I walk up the steps. It was crazy. And I see this lady in there and she's cooking pierogies. This thing was a full out kitchen. I'm no like, shit. I was like, this is crazy, man. What the, the hell's going on here? So I introduced myself. I said, hey, how's it going? My name's Antonio. She says, oh, hey, how are you? She's like, what do you do on the show? I said, I don't do anything on the show. I'm just here because my my sister-in-law's uh, father-in-law, or, or I should say her her boyfriend's father, owns the restaurant. And we came to meet Lauren Holly. And uh, she's like, well, I said, what? I said, I'm a chef. Like, I, this is this is cool. Like, yeah. it's just this makeshift kitchen in a truck. And I said, what do you do? She says, well, we we make coffee. We make breakfast snacks you know she was making pierogies and there was only 50 people on the crew it was a small little hallmark movie and uh she said you know this is uh, what i do all day i'm like so you feed the cast and the crew she's like yeah they just they walk onto it like it's their own it's their own convenience store and yeah. she she's there making them whatever they want so i looked at her and i said well uh, this is amazing how do i get involved in something like this i want to work on one of these trucks she says well here's the phone number to the guy who owns the truck and uh, give him a shout. He's always looking for people. They need people to work. So I walked off the truck, met, went back into the restaurant, met Lauren Holly. It was cool. Got her autograph on a dumb and dumber, hard copy VHS. <laughs> yeah, okay. and, uh, it was awesome. And, um, you know, on the way back home, I called the number she gave me. And, um, to this day, the gentleman who picked up his name was Donnie blaze who is a dear friend of mine right now, still to this day, he says, uh, how can I help you? I said, listen, I walked on to one of your craft trucks on the set of A Town Christmas Forgot. That was the name of the movie. Yeah. And I saw Martina working in there and I said, you know, do you have any other trucks that you need workers on? I'm, I need a chef. And before I could finish, he's like, come see me tomorrow. He's <laughs> like, oh, it's like, okay, I'll come, come see you tomorrow. And, uh, I drove up to Toronto. I met with Donnie and uh, <laughs> he looked at me. He says, what's your credentials? I told him what I did and what I, I um, you know, what, what I had. I had the restaurant, this, and, and he didn't really seemed, he didn't really, he didn't really care at the moment what yeah. my experience really was because in his mind, and I know this now in his mind, he was probably like, you have no idea what position I'm about to put you in yeah. because the people that do what we do for a living right now to the present day, you got to be insane. Being in film and television 
and, 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 and dealing with what we deal with every single day is not normal. And, and I'll get into that later, but I'll basically <laughs> tell you the next day I was on that truck that Martina was on and I was actually cooking for Lauren Hawley and that same crew the very next day because Martina was going on to another show and Donnie was like, well, you saw that truck come and pick it up tomorrow morning and uh, we're going to teach you the ropes. So he sent a little girl with me who um, also was in craft services. And uh, I forget her name at the time, like right now, but at the time she's been working with Donnie for a while and uh, she was teaching me the ropes. Now this is where everything changed because the people working on the trucks were not chefs. Yeah, They weren't even, I'm going to say they were, and I'm not offending anybody, but they were like like stay at home mom cooks. Yeah, you know, made beautiful lunches uh, for the kids, packed a great lunch. I made a mean grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, um, knew how to scramble eggs. That that was all that this job title required. And days were passing, and I was like, I was like, I need to, I need to like make better food here. Yeah, I got to figure this out. This is driving me nuts. So. Once I learned the system, it took me about a week, I figured out I'm going to start making certain things for the crews that they're not used to. And I remember walking into Donnie's shop and saying, hey, you got any shrimp? He's like, of course I got shrimp. I said, throw me five pounds of uh, black tigers, 3140s. So I'm going to make the crew some pasta today. I'm going to do a, a, a pasta pescatore. He looked at me and like, what? I said, yeah, I'm going to make the crew pasta pescatore for their uh, substantial today. I'm not making them a tuna wrap. I don't care. And he looked at me. He's like, okay, if you can do that. I said, can I do that? Of course I can do that. All I need is a kitchen. You're giving me a kitchen. And I remember the camera guy. His name was Barrett. He walked onto my truck and he was like, what the hell was that you just served? He's like, that was the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. He's like, can you make this again? And I said, I'm not only am I going to make this again, I'll make different things every day for you. Like, this is what I do. I'm a chef. Like, give me a, you know, you're an artist. Give me a paintbrush and a, and a clear white board and I'm going to yeah. paint you a picture. And, um, you know, the, the next day, Lauren Hawley heard about what I was doing. And um, she reached out to her assistant and she said, I want you to go talk to the guy on the craft truck. And uh, I want to know if he can cook for me. She's a vegan. And uh, I remember they walked onto the truck. And they're like, hey, you know, Lauren Hawley wants to know if you can make her lunch today. I said, are you crazy? Of course. I'll make her whatever she wants. Well, she's a vegan. I said, no problem. I trained a vegan. I can cook anything. Yeah. And um, they're like, okay, well, her son, Azar, is also vegan. And, uh, you know, can you cook for him as well? He said, well, this is my job, isn't it? Like, I, I still didn't learn the whole ins and out of the film industry. I didn't know she had her own, you know, chef or if her son was getting food delivered from like a restaurant. I had no yeah. idea. All I knew is that Lauren Hawley wanted me to make her lunch. So I did. I made her lunch and I can't even remember what it was, but it was something that was vegan and um, was awesome because ve being vegan uh, – Eating vegan is not, it's not easy. easy for a chef to cook, right? You got to figure out the proteins. You got to figure out how to, you know, balance the menu. So they're oh, actually sure. full, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Lauren Hawley lost her mind. 
She was like, this was the best food I've had on a film set in my career. And right away, it, it like made me, I was so happy. I was like, wow, this is a, this is a, an actress who did Dumb and Dumber. She's done big time movies. And this, you know, we're going back 13, 14 years. So she was quite popular at the time. Yeah. And, you know, to hear something like that just blew me away. And I was so happy and it made me want to do it even more. And fast forward, I've serviced her and the show. I cooked for the crew uh, off this little tiny craft truck that Donnie gave me. And it brought me to a show called Nikita, which Maggie Q was also uh, organic, gluten-free vegan, was the star. <laughs> she was the star of the show. Maggie Q, she's still popular right now. Like, like Maggie's my friend because I cooked for her for four years. Yeah. And she's doing huge feature films now. And uh, she was the star of Nikita. And I remember Donnie calling me saying, listen, you know, I need you to go work on this show because, you know, with your vegan culinary skills that you did for Lauren Holly, um, you're going to need to go and take care of the show because they, they fired five people in one week. That means they fire somebody every day because nobody, nobody can figure out Maggie Q. So I uh, fast forward, I go in there and I started turning heads. I just started turning heads and it wasn't me going there cooking for one person. I treated everybody on the crew the same. I don't care if you're a grip, a dolly grip, a lighting guy, somebody hanging from the rafters, whether you're the, whether you're the person in special effects blowing shit up, whatever position you had in that, on that crew, you were getting treated the same. I made sure that everybody ate whatever they wanted. And I, the service, I, I worked 20 hours, Steve, it was nuts. And we were going into midnights, four feet of snow outside. The film industry is a different animal. And Maggie Q was so appreciative of what I did for her. We became such close friends. I cooked for the whole crew, the whole cast, and it got to the producer, Mark David Albert. This producer came onto the truck one day and he said, Antonio, what you're doing here is incredible. I've never, and this this guy comes from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't know if you remember that oh, years yeah. ago. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, um, you know, he came to me and he's like, you're turning heads here. I've never heard this on a film set in my life when it came to food and service. I need you to build your own truck and I want you to do this for season two, season three, season four. And I want you to lead the show and I want you to hire your own team. And that's how it started. I mean, I, I, I wow. started, I, I just went into that winter saying, well, it looks like I'm going back into the restaurant business, but it's going to be on wheels. And how I'm going to be exciting a was that? And it, it, it was unbelievable. It really was. It was scary. It was scary because, you know, I invested my whole life. And I remember me and Andrea just purchased our house. I had no money. Um, I, I was working. I was collecting a paycheck. And, you know, the, the, the passion kind of brought me to that because nobody wants to work 20 hours. And, you know, you get feedback like your food is shit or it's average or, you know, the guy is just, he's, he's, he's a coffee maker, whatever. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that I was there for 20 hours and I was going to make sure everyone's palate was blown away. No matter what it was, whatever dietary restrictions they had, I needed to make sure that I had it covered because one complaint, you're only as good as your last meal. And one complaint could, could have changed everything. 
And yeah. I, I, I just, I made sure that, uh, I was on par every day and I built that truck. I built that truck. And to this day, you know, there's a lot more to the story that we could talk about, uh, for hours, but to this day, I got 26 trucks and, um, you know, there's a lot of people involved with me. I'm not saying I'm doing this on my own. Jesus. I I've, you know, uh, Steve, my brother-in-law, he started this off with me as well from working together with Pizziolo, uh, coming to work those nights, um, becoming my partner. We, um, we did this hard day and night. Um, fast forward, Daniel hooks at Martin's co-host of eating wild. You know, he's, he's been with me for 13 years. He's grinded it out. He, uh, you know, he's been through the, the, the hard days and the good days. Uh, Chef Craig Baxter, who I, I stole from the Lord of the Rings franchise out in New Zealand. He, um, he married somebody <laughs> from here. I was so lucky to get him. If it wasn't for that guy, I wouldn't even be on this microphone right now. So there's so many people I have to acknowledge. Um, you know, my wife included, who put up with me being on set every single day, day and night, barely seeing my daughter when she was born and for her being by my side and allowing me to jump into this crazy career um i I don't think i'd be here to this day but it was the passion that kept me going and uh 26 trucks later here we are it's crazy What brings people together more than fishing and hunting? How about food? I'm Chef Antonio Maleca, and I have spent years catering to the stars. Now, on Outdoor Journal Radio's Eatin' Wild podcast, Louise, Hooksat, and I are bringing our expertise and Rolodex to our real passion, the outdoors. Each week, we're bringing you inside the boat, tree stand, or duck blind and giving you real advice that you can use to make the most out of your fishing game. You're going to flip that duck breast over once you get a nice hard sear on that breast. You don't want to sear the actual meat. And it's not just us chatting here. If you can name a celebrity, we've probably worked with them. And I think you might be surprised who likes to hunt and fish. When Kit Harrington asks me to prepare him sashimi with his bass, I couldn't say no. Whatever Taylor Sheridan wanted, I made sure I had it. Burgers, steak, anything off the barbecue. That's a true cowboy. All Jeremy Renner wanted to have was lemon ginger shots all day. Find Eating Wild now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm Angelo Viola. And I'm Pete Bowman. Now, you might know us as the hosts of Canada's favorite fishing show, but now we're hosting a podcast. That's right. Every Thursday, Angela and I will be right here in your ears, bringing you a brand new episode of Outdoor Journal Radio. Hmm. Now, what are we going to talk about for two hours every week? Well, you know there's going to be a lot of fishing. I knew exactly where those fish were going to be and how to catch them, and they were easy to catch. Yeah, but it's not just a fishing show. We're going to be talking to people from all facets of the outdoors, from athletes. All the other guys would go golfing. Me and Garth and Turk and all the Russians would go fishing. To scientists. But now that we're reforesting and letting things free, it's the perfect transmission environment for Lyme disease. To chefs. If any game isn't cooked properly, marinated, or you will taste it. And whoever else will pick up the phone. Wherever you are, Outdoor Journal Radio seeks to answer the questions and tell the stories of all those who enjoy being outside. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. 
What do football, hockey players, boxers, and fishing guys have in common? A love for the outdoors. I'm Jamie Pastilli, a fishing guide with a lifetime of experience chasing down some of North America's most sought-after species with some of the world's most interesting characters. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Tackle Box podcast, I'm joined by one of those people, CFL legend Brad Sinopoli, as we share stories and talk to the athletes who found their passion through hunting and fishing. World Heavyweight Champion Tyson Fury, they brought you in to spar this big animal. I had a rod, so I just randomly brought it to Colorado. It got me hooked up on some beautiful fish, those big rivers, and it was uh, you know, some of my best memories of you know, my hockey during my hockey career. So join Jamie and I every week on the Tackle Box for a behind-the-scenes look at some of your favorite athletes and angling personalities. From hits to tangles, passes into angles, the Tackle Box has your sports and angling listening covered. Find the Tackle Box now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Listening to you talk, I remember we sat down at the Sportsman Show and we we had a chat and you kept saying to me, God, you sound like the way that I feel and everything else. There are so many parallels between what I did with Chaudière and what you're doing with with your business right now and it was the passion it was wanting to invest everything you have to make sure that that everybody is having a great time and the one thing that you said that really hit me when i was listening to you talk is everybody was the same it didn't matter whether you had the guy pulling the cart or hanging from the roof or blowing shit up or the the producer, executive producer, the star of the show. They were all the same. Exactly. And that is so key. That is key because that's what makes people feel good. Like if you, for me, I walk through the dining room every night and I talk to every person. But if you're a lodge owner, you need to be very cognizant of walking into your dining room and sitting down with the guests that have been coming for 10 years and not acknowledging the other people in the room. Because when you do that, it makes those people not feel good. And that defeats the whole purpose. And when you treat everybody the same like you did, that, that, is, such, that is such awesome stuff, man. Yeah, awesome and, and stuff. I, I could absolutely relate to um, your part of the business too, because I'm a customer. I'm a customer of yours. You know, I've been to lodges, and um, you know, we can get into the outdoor stuff. But you know, as you know, cooking isn't just my passion, but the outdoors has been a part of my life since I was a kid. You know, fishing, and, and now the last five years, getting into the hunting. Um, going to different lodges, going, you know, even in other countries, like I've been to, you know, fishing in Louisiana, I've been fishing in the Florida Keys. I've I've been to many different places and different lodges, hotels, bed and breakfasts, whatever it is, no matter how much, how successful you are on the water. Okay. And this is where I feel like your job could be tough because if you're if you're unsuccessful on the water, does that mean that people are going to actually use that as ammo to say that this lodge sucks because the fishing isn't good? 
Yeah, or, sometimes. Or, or, or are you going to look around and be like, look at this guy, Steve. He's walking through the dining room, making sure that everybody – he's chatting everybody, whether they caught fish, whether they didn't catch fish, whether, you know, uh, the weather conditions were shitty. That, that, that doesn't reflect on you. You know, to me, going to a lodge, um, you know, it was about the accommodations. The food obviously was important for me. And the fishing was a bonus. And whether or not Mother Nature agreed with it, I mean, your job, Steve, it's, it's, it's a thankless job in a sense where all the elements around you probably had to be perfect in order for people to say, okay, well, you know, go check out Shajir Lodge because Steve is awesome. He's an awesome dude and the food was amazing, but the fishing sucked. You know, how fair is that, right? And yeah. I'm not sure if you experienced that at all, but that's what, you know, me as a customer – I would always be like, okay, are we going to go back to this lodge? But last time we were there, we got skunked. You know, it's always about the fish. But, you know, I feel like if I walked into your shop or your lodge, I call everything a shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I walked into your lodge and I got to know Steve personally and fell in love with the, you know, the Shajir Lodge as its own, I wouldn't give a shit if I caught a fish or not. I don't and care. That- that's the that's the thing and that's what i learned very very quickly if you have guests come in and they go out and they have a uh, an unsuccessful day we'll call it they didn't do very well fishing whatever happens if they come back to a lodge and the food was okay the service was mediocre and um, there was really nobody there to talk to, to help you make tomorrow better. Right. Then that the fishing really magnifies things. And people are like, this, this sucks. Like, I mean, there's no fish, uh, you know, and, and those are the people that will go out onto um, uh, TripAdvisor or any one of these places where you can leave a review and say, yeah, there's not very good fishing here, blah, 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 and leave a bad review. But, and there were, inevitably, there's always days where the fishing sucks for whatever reason, whether it's weather, whether it's this, that, there's just those days. But if on those days you come back to the lodge, it's a very warm atmosphere the food smells great. There are happy people that smile and engage with you and make you feel good and know your name. And when you walk in, you feel like you're walking into, into home, like you're walking into a place where you feel great. You feel good. The fishing is the last thing on your mind at that point. Yeah. And, and that is what I did. I took control of every aspect that I had control of the food, the cleanliness in and out of the lodge and in all of the the cottages, the housekeeping, the service, the dock. And there were a lot of bumps along the way. And, and I, when I bought the lodge, I had zero experience in any of it. I just listened. I, I, I'm a very good Per, a people person and 
understand how people feel by looking at them and talking to them and feeling how they feel. And I knew when somebody wasn't happy. And the advantage that I had was most of these people are there for, are with me for multiple days. It's not like in a restaurant where you have somebody come in for 45 minutes to two hours and you have the ability to, to, um, understand what's going on with them. Being a chef, you really gotta, you gotta hit them with that one shot you got and make it, make it count. I had the ability to, get feedback from the people, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. And I would take a notepad with me. I would walk through the dining room. And if I said to, uh, um, to, to Jimmy and Cindy, Hey, how's your day going? And this and that. And, you know, Jimmy looks up and he says, Oh, it was all right. And Cindy doesn't make eye contact and says, uh, yeah, we had an all right time. You know, you know, it's not good. Oh, for sure. And I would say, Hey, okay. Um, listen, so I can tell there's something going on and, you know, the dining room's a bit of an uncomfortable place to kind of talk about it, but I need to understand what's bothering you. So would you mind if I come to your cottage after dinner and we have a chat and then they, you know, 99% of the time they'd say, yeah, oh yeah. Okay. And I'd say, listen, I, I need, I, I've got, we've got four more days here or five or two or whatever. I need you to help me understand how I can give you the most outstanding experience that you've ever had, but I can't do it without you. So would you mind if I came and they'd, and inevitably every time Antonio, they'd say, yeah, no problem. So I'd grab a bottle of wine. I'd grab three glasses, my notepad. I'd walk out to the cottage. We'd sit in the screen porch and then we'd get into it and I'd say, okay, what's going on? And then I, then they would tell me exactly what's going on and whether it was they had a problem with a staff member or the housekeeping wasn't done or whatever it might be. Right. I would make notes. And if I could fix it in the moment, I would. But just sitting in front of somebody and taking a note and them seeing you taking a note meant the world to a lot of people and the hardest guests. And I see it. I walk into, to, to lodges now with fishing Canada and I see there's, there's people that are hard to deal with. Even to this day, there's, there's, there's people that go to Chaudière that are hard to deal with. Right. They love me and I love them because I have respect for them because I worked to understand who they were and what they needed, where it's so easy for people to look at those, you know, small majority of people and say, you know what? Those people are assholes. They don't they, like, I mean, they're just that that's just the way that they are. And there's nothing that I can do to fix them right. and just turn it on to them where I would go and I would confront, not confront, I would understand what those hard people were, were expecting. And once you get on the same page and give them very simple things like, you know, empty the garbage every day, because I have a, I, I don't like seeing garbage in my cottage, you know, little things. Those are the people that become your biggest advocates 
those are the people, those, those hard people are in my business, the key to a lot of the success because they make the most noise. Right. And if it's negative, which very easy, it can always be negative. They make negative noise. But if you can win them over and motivate them to make positive noise, it's the loudest noise that you can get at any guests. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, the, the businesses are so similar. Yeah. I I mean, the, the thing about having, you know, whether it's a restaurant or a catering company or a lodge, I feel like if you, um, if you provide a service that you care about so much, um, but yet you have other people representing you now, like for my, for, you know, my, my position, I have other chefs and we have, you know, teams that go out, obviously yeah. like, you can't split yourself in half. <clears throat> so, so it, it's, you know, sometimes you wish you can, but unfortunately you can't. And then, you know, when somebody misrepresents you, um, I feel like that is always going to be, no matter what business you're in, uh, a negative. And that's where, you know, for me, when you were feeding hundreds and hundreds of people every day, now I take a percentage. It's like, if I get 95% positive yeah. um, reviews or, you know, not everyone's going to like pasta, not everyone's going to like steak. Maybe you're a vegetarian, maybe you're a pescatarian. I don't, I can't read your mind. So what yeah. I do is, is, is I, I try to make a balanced menu that everybody can enjoy at least one or two items. And, you know, you're never going to be perfect unless you're doing it yourself every single day and you yeah. don't expand. How are you supposed to expand if you, if you, if you don't, you know, trust people and, and, you know, train them the way you want them to be trained. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately the, the, you know, the negative part of the, being a chef and owning a catering company is, is you can never please everybody. And I think that I learned quite quickly how to adapt to many of those situations and food is the hard food is the hardest thing steve like you said you know entertainment was a big thing for being a lodge owner because if the fishing sucked if the weather was whatever whatever you need to keep people motivated you got to keep people and for us and i'll be honest with you you know we'd go to the same place every single year you know me top dog and, and hook set we you know growing up fishing together we'd go to you know, when we were younger, we'd go to many different places because we always would judge it on the fishing. If the fishing wasn't good, we wouldn't go because we were on the boat for like 12 hours. That's right. You know, we were on the boat, but now that we're older, you know, and I'm not saying we're old, but you know, we're in our forties, the three of us. And, you know, listening to the Eden Wild podcast, you'll hear many of our stories together. Um, but like we, the, the accommodations, the food, the service is so important to us now. Like, I don't give a shit if I catch a muskie, a pike, whatever it is we're targeting that day. All I care about is I'm with Dan, I'm with Lewis. We got CJ with us, you know, uh, another friend that we grew up with fishing together. We keep it a tight group. And, you know, going to these lodges is so important to us because we, co- we come in now, we come in for lunch. We would never come off the water. Like never, <laughs> we were on the yeah. water from, from to the moment the sun was up to the moment the sun went down. But now we come off the water. We want to enjoy a lunch. We want to have a drink, shoot the shit, figure out where we're going next, take our time. And we enjoy the whole experience. 
So I think that, you know, your job or, or your industry, you know, for being a lodge owner could be a whole bunch of different things and, and add the food aspect to it. I mean, you know, like you said, you had the restaurant and you probably had to deal with chefs as well. And we're not easy people to deal with. <laughs> well, <laughs> that brings me to a, an interesting topic. And um, yes, and don't kid yourself. The food was the single most important thing in my business. Bar none. Bar none. The food was where I would get the most compliments and the most complaints was the food. Right. And when you're operating a business and, and listen, I'm not a chef. I like to cook for myself, but I have a weird palate. I love salt. I love vinegar, a lot of tardiness, like a lot of the shit that I cook, my family won't even eat. Right. Right. So <laughs> I, um, I had to employ a chef and honestly, Antonio, I've met some of the most awesome people that are chefs, but all of them are crazy as shithouse rats. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. like uh, they're, and, and for me, uh, being a seasonal business, a lot of the guys that I were, that I hired were kind of transient and, and moving from one job to another job. And, and, um, and, you know, when you're on an island, in the middle of the French river and the chef finds out that you, you can't cook, you can't do the job. That was the only job that I really couldn't do. And I had, I had chefs take advantage of me because of that. Right. Um, and um, again, some of the, the most awesome people, but man, oh man, there were times when I was just, dumbfounded by the way that some of them acted with the waitresses and yelling and screaming and losing their mind. And I get that it was a, it was a very stressful job, but there were a few times where I, I had to go in and, and say, listen, you get your shit together because if you don't, there's 21 boats out front and you can pick one of them fuckers and get the hell off of my Island. Yeah. Do you yeah. really want to be here? Because you know, and, and, and I just wonder, I, I don't know. Well, I did. I, I found, I, I had uh, a chef uh, that um, wasn't like that, but he was an alcoholic in the end. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and then, you know, a lot of, a lot of the chefs that I employed were, were because of the work and, and the business were dependent on um, certain drugs. Um, and not, not, I'm not talking about cocaine or heroin. Like, I mean, uh, Tylenol threes with codeine yep. or, um, you know, uh, alcohol. Do you, did like, do you run into that? Oh my God. You've got 26, you've got 26 people working for you. Yeah. Um, myself included. Yes. I mean, I mean, the answer is yes. I mean, think of it this way. Um, being a chef is probably one of the hardest careers that you dive into. And I say this to a lot of people that went to school for culinary arts. And, and the question I ask is, and I see it, I see it in my kitchen. Um, if I threw a 50 pound sack of carrots in front of you, 50 pound sack of carrots in front of you, if you don't enjoy peeling every single one of those carrots, 
then you went to school for the wrong fucking thing. Because I'm going to tell you something. You should be enjoying that part of the job, okay? Because you signed up for it, okay? This is what we this is what we wanted to do. I learned this at a – I didn't go to school for it, but I learned it very quickly that I was going to love taking apart that fish, and I was going to learn how to do it better and better and better every time – you know, people will look at that and be like, oh, my God, I can't do that every day for a living. Well, we're signing up for it. We are choosing this path. Yeah. This is the career we're choosing. Here's the problem. When you are working hours upon hours, there, there's there's something that I want people to look up. If you ever looked at, and you probably seen it in your kitchen, how we eat. Do you see how we take a break? Do you see how chefs um, deal with? constant mind blowing things happening constantly from a waitress forgetting to take the food when it's hot oh, or somebody coming back to leaving it under the light and, uh, leaving it under the light and now their steak is well done there's so many things that like i said from the start we are artists you give me a blank canvas and i'm going to paint you a picture not everyone's going to like that picture but i'm going to tell you right now i will make sure i do everything in my power to make that picture the best picture in the world. And that's how I, that's how I attacked every single plate I made. But if somebody comes along and drops a, a glass of wine on my picture, okay, yeah. that's out of my control and it will reflect on me because that customer is going to look at that picture and be like, I don't want that picture. There's a red stain coming down it because the waitress dropped her wine on it. Or, you know, maybe the dishwasher forgot to clean the plate properly and the, and, and the cutlery has water stains on it. Who does that come back to? The kitchen. So, yes, we, we, we deal with um, anger management differently. And yeah. booze, I'd say booze is the number one thing. And alcohol, you know, calms the nerves. Have you ever seen how we eat? We're sitting on, I'm sitting on milk crates. I make the most beautiful food in the world. I will sit on a milk crate <laughs> and shove the scraps off of the beef tenderloin I just trimmed and shove it down my mouth as fast as I can. And I'm drinking water out of a tap in a 500 milliliter deli container because I don't have a cup around me and I'm filling it with ice and water and I'm chewing on ice constantly because I don't have time to go to the fridge and get a drink. So cigarettes, booze, the Tylenol threes, cocaine, there's, yeah. I, I worked in hotels. I've seen it. I've seen whatever drug kept your mind going. Unfortunately, that's the truth of the matter. I'm not here to be a political person and tell you that that's not the case. Yeah. Buddy, it was hard yeah. watching people destroy their lives because alcohol took over. And it, and it, it goes to, listen, you can smoke. You can smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. It's not about the health concerns here. It's about taking the seven minutes you need to decompress yeah. from going through a three-hour service that was absolutely bonkers. Whether it was successful or not, you're behind the line. All you're looking at is that ticket or that order, and you're making sure that you're painting the perfect picture. And I always use that analogy, and it's nuts. So. Unfortunately, we are a we're a different breed, and that's where the business part of myself, um, because I own the business, I had to adapt to what you did, 
as somebody that you said it yourself, you weren't a chef. It's the only thing you in your business you couldn't control or do. Maybe you could, excuse me, maybe you were able to control it um, in a sense of the ordering and the food costs and the menu planning back and forth. What? Because, you know, chefs need to know what you're charging, Steve. Yeah. You know, if you, you hire me to be your chef at a lodge, I'm going to want to serve filet mignon every day because I know it's going to be amazing. But you're going to come to me and say, listen, I'm only charging this amount for this customer to be here. Yeah, let's get some beef stroking off in there. Let's figure it out and let's make it amazing, right? So, you know, the business part of me was like, okay, I need to learn how to be the mentor for these chefs that are looking into, you know, drinking their lives away. And listen, we work so much that we can't even spend our money. You know, chefs will work. When's the busiest time at a restaurant? The weekends. When's the when's the slow times uh, Monday and Tuesday? Well, what the hell's happening on a Monday and Tuesday in the world other than a baseball game? So, you know, we're putting we're put in these positions. These guys are put in these positions that they work through the best time of your lives in a sense where summertime is busy. Patio time is busy uh, in the summer times. Weekends are nuts. You're open till 11 to 2 in the morning. Uh, the bar is crazy. Whether you're a bartender, whether you're a waitress, we're all the same. You know, bartenders and waitresses have more problems than chefs do because I'll tell you right now, they're around it more than we are. They have their hands on it. And it's so easy to, you know, look at what your surroundings are and adapting to it personally. And I think, you know, being a chef and being around chefs and seeing their struggles and, and dealing with some really bad ones. But then dealing with people that have their head on straights. And, and I, I'll tell you one thing. I think age and growing pains has a lot to do with what we do because I went through those stages. I'm not saying I did cocaine or any of that shit, but, you know, I smoked yeah. a pack of cigarettes. I drank my brains out when I got home because I just needed to decompress. And then next thing you know, your mind's moving about tomorrow's wedding we're doing or, or you know, what's the menu tomorrow? Did I order enough of this shit? Yeah. And this and that. And then, you know. It was so hard. So, so unfortunately for you, I think, or for any lodge owner, when you are dealing with chefs without yourself having much experience in the kitchen, you're, I think you're, you're, you are going to deal with something and it might not be drugs. It might not be booze, but they might have problems at home. They might have, uh, maybe they can't work weekends. Well, you need people on the weekends. You need these people to step up at the busiest times for the business and that's something that I struggled out to. Listen, if you could be a chef from nine to five, Monday to Friday, you'd have a lot more people in the kitchen. I could tell you that right now. <laughs> I know. Um, but we work through uh, those crazy hours and those crazy times. Yeah. Well, and for me, um, you say it's tough to find somebody to work on the weekends and this and that. I was living with my chefs. They came in in the spring and left in the fall or earlier if they either quit or I fired them. Um, but some of the greatest people that I met were chefs. I had one chef and, uh, I remember I didn't, uh, things were so busy around the lodge that I really didn't, um, see what was going on. Um, and, um, he was an alcoholic, uh, mm-hmm. but he was very, he was a very controlled alcoholic until, Something happened in, in this one year in particular, and he worked for me for quite a few years. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of this guy because he got himself straightened out, but, um, he really hit rock bottom with me. 
Um, I remember um, uh, it was probably middle of September. So I only had a, about three weeks left in the season. Uh, and um, dinner was uh, done and and uh, um, dessert was getting ready to come out. And I was on the dining room floor and the girls had uh, had all the plates cleaned up and I'm kind of, I'm talking to people and I'm kind of half waiting for, uh, for, um, all the dessert to start to, to roll out and there's no dessert. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I didn't say anything to the guests or anything, but like, I mean, it was an abnormally long period of time between cleaning up the main and then the dessert coming out because it wasn't, it was a set dessert. Like, I mean, and when I walked out onto the floor, it was uh, pie and um, all they had to do was put the ice cream and then, uh, and then drizzle on it and, and it was ready to go out. So I walked in the back of the kitchen and all, everything's out and the, and the girls are kind of standing there. And I said, Hey, where's Phil? And uh, they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, we got to get dessert out. Like, I mean, dessert's got to go. And uh, they said, okay, well, we don't know what to do. And I said, okay, well, we had those three squeeze bottles of the 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 bread and the caramel and the chocolate. Right? <laughs> right? I said, grab two bottles, one in each hand, and just go like this. And make a design on the plate. <laughs> okay, it works. Yeah. And then take like one scoop of ice and cream caramel. and send it. <laughs> so that's what the girls did, right? The one girl was doing that. The one, the other girl was taking three, four at a time and then they, and they got it looked after and nobody in the front of the house knew any different. And I'm like, where in the hell is he? So I go out the back door of the kitchen and I'm, and, and it's dark because uh, we moved our, our, our dinners back to seven o'clock at night in the fall so that people could get the extra hour of fishing. Cause if the six o'clock hour is a poor hour, it's the last hour of light in the fall. So we would push dinner back. So by this time it's like eight thirty, nine o'clock and it's dark and I hear rustling out in the bush and I'm like, Hey, Phil. And, uh, I hear, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing, man? We got dessert. Oh, I'm out here, Steve. I'm chasing the wild chickens. And I'm like, hey, crap. What? Yeah, I'm chasing the wild chickens. I'm like, hey, how about you leave them alone and come on over here? And um, he was he was just absolutely inebriated. Something had happened at that point that kind of, you know, set him off. I don't know whether it was a relationship or whatever. And, and all of that stuff happens on the island. Like, you got to understand that you're not employing somebody to come to work for you for eight, 10, 12, maybe 14 hours in a day. Right. And then they get to go home and they get to decompress and they get to, you know, come back the next day. We work long hours together and then live together in very tight quarters. I had my own space up above the main lodge, but all of the staff was a dorm room. It was, uh, but everybody had their own individual room, but they were small and, and they lived together and Phil was hammered. And, um, I had a stretch of, of three days after this where I didn't have any guests at all. And I was going home. So I just, I helped fill up and, you know, I, I took him up to his room and, and, um, and, and put him in bed and, and, uh, I thought I'll, I'll talk to him in the morning. And, um, I, uh, went to, went there the next morning and, um, 
he was still in bed and there was like a case of, of, uh, wine beside his bed. And I, and I could see he was rather than getting up and having water, he would wake up in the middle of the night and drink out of the bottle of wine. And he was still like, he wasn't hung over. He was still drunk at like two o'clock the next afternoon. And I said to Phil, I said, listen, Phil, I love you, man. You're, 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 you're so important to me and my business right now. The quality of what you do here is outstanding, buddy, but I can't have this. Like we can't, you can't be this person and hold down this job. I need you to, I need you to, to, to work with me here and I'll do anything that I can to help you out. Like I, I'll do whatever it takes. And, but I did say, I'm going home for two days, Phil. And if you're not sober, when I get back, I'm going to have no choice, but to, but to find somebody else. And, and, you know, I think at the, and the, and at that point I said, find somebody else and, and I, I'll have to find you help. Right. I didn't know the legalities of just saying, Hey, you're fired. Not to yep. mention the fact that I love the guy. I didn't, I, I was worried. I was genuinely worried about him. I'd never seen anybody like that before. Yep. And, um, he said, um, yeah. And, and he was still so drunk. I didn't even know if he understood what I was saying. And this is, this is like over 24 hours ago, the other incident happened. And, um, uh, I went home and, um, when I come back up, he was stone sober. It wasn't easy. I could tell, like, I mean, he was drinking coffee and had the shakes and, and was, was in rough shape, but he was sober. And, and, um, as a, as a, a team, our, our staff was, was great. And, and I, I said to everybody on staff at that point, you know, um, we're not going to drink anymore. We've only got three weeks. Um, bring me all your alcohol uh, from the staff quarters. I'll store it for you up in, in the main lodge and you can have it when we leave. But um, I don't want Phil to have any, um, I don't want there to be a reason for him to fall off the wagon between now and then. And then we did, I did get him, get him help with AA and, uh, the following year, uh, he didn't come back and work for me, which was, um, which was hard for me because uh, I loved him, but he, uh, he chose to go and work at a, um, at a, a fishing lodge in, um, Newfoundland that was dry right. and, um, uh, halfway through, well, and the, and I hired actually the chef that, um, is at, is still at Chaudière. I hired Dave, um, and then he come and worked for half of a year, but Dave, um, ended up getting a job to go. He had a, a gig in, uh, the North Pole. He'd go wow. up there and he'd cook up there and, you know, it's, you know, for a chef to, to go to on location like that. I think he was at a, like a NORAD base or something. And, uh, I couldn't say he got, he got that job and, and I couldn't say, no, <laughs> you have to stay with me <laughs> because he was going to make like eight times more than what I was paying him. So I called Phil, 
um, at that point. And, uh, Phil ended up coming back to work for me and, and, um, uh, we took him back and forth to, uh, to AA and, uh, and now he's doing fabulous. Um, I'm going to have him on as a guest one of these days, uh, because, um, he's got a little, a little uh, baby now and, uh, and is successful and, and, you know, but, um, yeah, like that chef position, man, is so difficult. Yeah. But you know, the, the whole, um, you know, be like, like just listening to what your, uh, your story and what, what, what really intrigues me about your story is what you did for Steve and how, you know, you just ended it off that he's got a baby now and he's doing amazing. It's like no other business owner, whether you're, a, you know, in a restaurant or a, a, a lodge, no owners um, would actually take somebody back like that. And the fact that you took him back and you brought him to AA and you supported him because you love the guy, um, you know, that's, that's unbelievable. And I think that if people would even know what happens behind the scenes, and that's why I love your podcast, because you actually tell people what the hell's going on behind the scenes, because nobody will know what Steve did for that chef personally what you did for this guy personally is you probably saved his life. And it's crazy, you know, because I, I dealt with very similar situations and um, you could only be the person you are as, as a business owner, as a, as somebody who has guests coming in and out daily, weekly, um, you know, entertaining. You might be having a bad day, Steve, but you got to put a smile on your face yeah. because if you don't, those people are going to think that you're miserable. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Jerry Olette, and I was honoured to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch with centuries of medicinal use by indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession, and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show's about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom and my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places and meet the people that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Find Under the Canopy now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Back in 2016, Frank and I had a vision to amass the single largest database of muskie angling education material anywhere in the world. Our dream 
was to harness the knowledge of this amazing community and share it with passionate anglers just like you. Thus, the Ugly Pike Podcast was born and quickly grew to become one of the top fishing podcasts in North America. Step into the world of angling adventures and embrace the thrill of the catch with the Ugly Pike Podcast. Join us on our quest to understand what makes us different as anglers and to uncover what it takes to go after the infamous fish of 10,000 casts. The Ugly Pike Podcast isn't just about fishing. It's about creating a tight-knit community of passionate anglers who share the same love for the sport. Through laughter, through camaraderie, and an unwavering spirit of adventure, this podcast will bring people together. Subscribe now and never miss a moment of our angling adventures. Tight lines, everyone. Find Ugly Pike now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Here's a, here's a true story, I, uh, not to get off topic or anything, but I was cooking for Kit Harrington. So Kit Harrington at the time, that's Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Everybody's going nuts for this guy. And we were working, we were doing Pompeii. And it was the last day. I cooked for Kit. I even took him fishing to Lake Nipissing. That's another story we could talk about. But the pressure for cooking at a guy when he was in his prime of his career working on Game of Thrones as Jon Snow, you know, I didn't even look at that because I didn't even watch the bloody show. I couldn't care less. All I knew is that Kit was my client. I had to make sure he was happy every day. He, I followed his diet. I went out, handpicked his food every single day. Um, you know, the last day comes. And usually the last day of a film set is a big deal. You know, we put on a, a massive display of food, seafood, ice sculptures, yeah. um, you know, salad bar from one end to the other. You know, Craig and I, we, you know, Steve at the time, we killed ourselves every time it was a finale meal. It was like the hardest thing we had to do. And I'll never forget this. The crew, we had an ice sculpture. The ice sculpture was a volcano and it had the Pompeii logo built into the ice sculpture and we loaded it with shrimp. The volcano was filled with shrimp and the explosion out of the ice was the cocktail sauce. Nice. That was the lava. And um, you should have seen this ice sculpture. I think I spent like 1700 bucks on this bloody thing. And I had like, again, the last meal is the meal everyone remembers. So, you know, I wanted to put a good impression on the crew. And they went into lunch. It was the middle of the summer. They went into lunch. They went into lunch two or three hours. When I say they went into lunch, meaning the director didn't break on time. He looked at the script and said, you know what? I want to finish this scene. We're going to go three hours into lunch. I don't give a shit about the caterers. Doesn't care that we have the food sitting out there in chafing trays, no. salad bars, ice sculptures melting. And I remember I was so pissed off that the director decided to pull this shit on our last day when I had an el- I, I had a I had a chocolate fountain that I ordered. And I remember the lady that came to do the service came with, you know, you order the chocolate fountain. They come, they do the fondue, they do the whole, yeah, yeah. you know, they went through it. She's like, I got to leave. She's like, I got another job book. You have me here from 12 to two. They're not breaking till four o'clock. I got to leave. I got to leave. I said, well, can you leave the chocolate fountain? She's like, no, I, I got to take it with me. So I paid 700 bucks for this lady to show up with her chocolate fountain <laughs> that, that I ended up eating myself with Craig and the other chefs because the crew was late. They finally break for lunch. And this was the day I took my picture with Kit Harrington because, you know, he was so popular at the time. And he's like, Antonio, we'll take a picture after. I said, okay, I want to take a picture for Instagram. And 
you know, having cameras on set usually aren't allowed. We all sign disclaimers and, you know, we can't have cameras on set. And I was so fucking pissed off that when the crew came down to eat their lunch, they can see it. I had such a sour face. I, I was just so taken back that this director didn't care. And you know what? It bit me in the ass because so many people noticed that I was in such a pissed off mood that I learned from that. And I heard it. I heard it from crew members. Um, you know, I went to take my picture with Kit and yeah, I was smiling, but you, I can see it. I can see my face. And I'm like that. I, I remember that moment. And I have to, I have to let those, you know, those things go. Uncontrollable situations. It happens all the time. And until you learn how to deal with those uncontrollable situations, I don't think you'll ever be successful in any job you do. Because if I come to your your lodge and Steve's sitting in the corner pissed off for whatever reason. Because it's raining out. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to remember it. And as fortunately, me being your customer, um, you know, I'd probably get to know you and I'd probably come up to you, man. You okay, brother? What's happening? Tell me what's going on. Yeah. And that that's what was happening. People were like, why are you, what's wrong? Why are you so pissed off? Well, the ice cups are melting. Who cares? Don't worry about it, Antonio. The food's great. You know, the director yeah. wanted to push lunch. Who cares? So I've learned, I've learned how to deal with those um, situations. And unfortunately, no matter what's happening in your personal life, you got to put a smile on it. And that's the hardest thing. Yeah, for sure. So, um, who was your favorite, uh, crew members or oh, cast? Man. Oh, that's a tough one, man. I, like, I, I mean, I, that was a great, great, honestly, for me, Game yeah. of Thrones, I'm going to say was the best television show ever recorded. Yeah. I get that a lot. Um, people asking me about Kit Harrington and, you know, tell me about it and what was he like? And, how about the Khaleesi? Was she a cute little girl? Was Who's she that? nice? Who's that? Sorry. I the Khaleesi, that. the dragon, the dragon queen. Oh boy. Um, well, I didn't cook for her. Uh, she wasn't on Pompeii, but I will tell you, there was some cast members that were on that show that yeah. I embarrassed the shit out of myself. And one of them was Emily Scott, who I, I don't know what she played in the movie. I, I didn't watch the movie, but she was from Australia. And the idiot chef that I was working with says, do you know who that is? That's Emily Scott. Uh, she's from England. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> and if you know, Australian people don't like being called English. Yeah, that's like calling an Italian uh, 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 Greek. Greek or a Spaniard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she comes through the line. I look at her face and I said, Hey, Emily, I'm Chef Antonio. How are you? And she looks at me. She's like, Great. Before I can hear her accent or before I can have a conversation, I said, What part of England are you from? She looks at me and she's like, I'm Australian. <laughs> I was like, For fuck's sake. I look at Luke. I'm like, I'm like, Where the hell were you on that one, you big dude? We <laughs> laugh about right it under the day. bus. <laughs> we laugh about it to this day. Um, but you know what, to answer your question, I, I'm going to be honest, like I've cooked for Olivia Newton, John, God rest her soul, beautiful yeah. person. Um, uh, so nice to deal with. I, I gotta say she was a pleasure. Um, but I, I gotta say Maggie Q, 
I got to say Maggie Q was such a, a big part of where I am today. Um, she was a vegan, so she challenged the shit out of me. It was yeah. so hard to, to, you know, get to where I am now without really, really learning the techniques and learning vegan cuisine. Yeah. Um, but notable mentions, um, Jesus, where do I start? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say Shane West was cool because we had a lot in common. We both like wrestling. We both like football and, you know, we both love sports. We got on pretty well. Um, those were from the Nikita days. Uh, I worked on suits. I did nine years of suits uh, wow. working for that cast. You know, Meghan Markle who's now married to the prince or whatever. Again, yeah, yeah. I don't get into the politics, but while she was there, it was awesome cooking for her. Actually, Harry came onto our boat, on our boat, onto our truck. Uh, one morning, he was here to do the Pan Am Games, and he walked onto the truck seeking a an egg white omelet. And I looked over, I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's the prince or whatever the hell he is. And, yeah. uh, you know, and everyone was like, oh, my God, they're all freaked out. So I learned not to get. Did you ask him if he was from Australia? What part of Australia? <laughs> <laughs> he probably would have loved it. Eh? Uh, yeah. um, you know, but, uh, you know, I worked I worked on uh, a Schitt's Creek with Eugene Levy and his son, Daniel Levy and Catherine yeah. O'Hare, good Canadian people. And, uh, you know, four years of my life doing that show, the cast, like I remember, you know, cooking for Eugene was like was one of the best things of my career because I got to know him as a person and we were like a family, you know, working on film sets, you're working with the same people every day for months and months at a time. And for long and, hours, and for like long hours. Yeah. And I was cook. I cooked for his dog for Christ's sake. Like his dog was my family. <laughs> and it was like, Tonyo, I need to take some food home for the, for the dog. It's like, what do you want? You know? And, and, you know, Star Trek discovery, Star Trek, if you're a Trekkie out there, I worked on that show for five years and, um, Meeting guys like uh, um, Isaac, Jason Isaac, who is uh, on Harry Potter, you know, Lucius Malfoy. That guy was one of the nicest guys I've ever cooked for in my life. So it's hard to say who would be your favorite. Yeah. Um, but I do have some people that I, I didn't really like cooking for because they wouldn't uh, give me the time or day. And, and But you know what? I smiled and I, I, I kept my job professional. And, and we're not going to talk about who they were? I don't want to really talk about that too much because if they ever listen to this, then, you know, and you know, for sure, they're going to hear this. <laughs> you at know what? Some, at some I, point, I, everybody's going to hear this. I could only say that um, I enjoy what I do and whether you had a good experience with myself or not, I kept it professional. And if you wanted to be my friend and you wanted to take it outside of the kitchen or outside of the set, I was there. I was there for you. Kit Arrington, I took him fishing Took him out of his, you know, right out of his zone. I don't even think that production to this day knew I took him up north to Lake, to Lake Nipissing because he just came to me and said, get me out of here. I need to get away. I need to, I need take me somewhere where, you know, I can, I, I can be myself and not, he, he was so popular. It was so crazy. And uh, when we took him fishing, it was the first time he caught a smallmouth bass in his life. Really? And yeah, I took him out with Sean DeGagne. I, we, I took him to Bear Creek Cottages because that was my go-to lodge. That was my go-to dude. You know, I grew up fishing at, at from Sean, learning from back of the day when he owned uh, Idle Time Fishing Camp. And there was lots of times where we went there and got skunked as well. You know, yeah. fishing for muskie all the time. You're not going to catch one every day. I don't care how good you are. Um, but, you know, I said to Sean, we're coming up there with Kit Harrington. And uh 
we took him out smallie fishing and he had the best time of his life so these actors and these actresses i feel for them because they live in a bubble yeah. they live in a trailer for six months at a time they're not home they're far away from home when they come from, to toronto and i my job is to make sure that i give them the best i can and now with my company they way ex- expanded I hope every God, I hope every day that uh, every guy that or every girl that works for me gives everybody that gourmet craft and catering experience. And, you know, I, I pulled myself out of the kitchen and, and, I, and I became the businessman now and I'm controlling everything. I'm watching everything with the help of, you know, like I said, Daniel. And there's so many people that that are surrounding me every day that help us get through this movie and film industry. And now I'm focusing on the Eating Wild podcast. I get the, you know, hooked up with Ange Viola, who is a mentor to me. I grew up watching his show. Again, part of the outdoors is the outdoors is such a huge part of my life. Uh, personally, it got me out of the kitchen. That was my alcohol. That yeah. was my drugs. Getting onto my boat and fishing with Lewis and Daniel and CJ. And now we can talk about what we're talking about now and 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 you know our you know experience with cooking meat and doing shore lunches and and hunting now with my best friends and now that we can talk about it with the outdoor journal radio podcast team and being your teammate and 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 you know Jerry and everybody involved it's it's such a huge pleasure for me to share my story and to their story and hear your story and 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 how we can relate is incredible. Yeah. You know? And and that's why I'm excited about the Eating Wild podcast. Yeah, I am too. I am so excited about all the podcasts, you know, and and even bringing on the the Ugly po- uh, Ugly Pike guys. Oh, I like I mean guys. they're a, they're a fantastically established podcast right now and and uh and they're under the umbrella as well. Uh you know with uh, uh Chris and and uh, and Frank. Frank like yeah. I mean yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. But yeah, those listen, guys those guys are awesome. Yeah. Awesome guys. Yeah. Now one one last question here. Yep. And and we're both gonna we're both gonna answer it. Yeah. Most memorable fishing experience. Mm-hmm. I got one. Oh man, I got one. <laughs> just like that, brother. Just like that. I got one, and it's not a successful one, but it's a it's the <laughs> best story that I could ever tell. And um it's the fish that got away. And me and Top Dog, Lewis Pereira, co-host, uh, Daniel Hookset was on a different boat, but he was at the same part. We are at the up, uh, west arm of Lake Nipissing. And, you know, we were young. We were kids, and we were always out for that musky. Musky fishing, man. We've put hours and hours into musky. And we were unsuccessful due to the fact that we had no experience, man. We were watching TV. We are watching Ange. Yeah. You know, we're watching Pete, we're watching the boys on Saturday mornings and they didn't fish musky very often. Um, but we, we, we loved, we loved chasing the gators and we loved chasing those, those big muskies and we're out there and I'm in Lewis's boat. Now he had a piece of shit. We were young. Okay. This boat was maybe a 16 foot boat. The motor was, was Never, you can never ever rely on this motor. Always something was <laughs> happening, and and we were so young that we couldn't afford boats. But this boat that Lewis had, and, and Daniel actually they owned it together. <coughs> excuse me, and 
you know, they, they would never part. They couldn't part ways with it. It was always putting band-aids on it. Let's put band-aids. <laughs> we're going to get out <laughs> yeah. there. And if the water was choppy, we were dying. So we had to make sure the water was calm. And we, um, you know, so we're at this lodge, Lackhair Lodge. And Lewis and his father, Jaka, they always picked this lodge because of the breakfast. And the breakfast was always incredible. It was a bed and breakfast. We're right on the upper French. Uh, sorry, it was the upper upper West Arm. West like, Arm and like Nipissing. West yeah. Arm and Nipissing. And we went into the lodge. And I remember Kevin, God rest his soul, he's not alive anymore. But he was always a great host with his wife, Leslie, um, said to us, guys, I can't do breakfast for you. Uh, they came and tested the water. And um, they're not allowing us to open the restaurant this morning. But there's good news. If you head that way, um, you're going to come up. And I don't know the name of the place. I, I was, again, I was in my early 20s. And they said, you know, they they can do breakfast for you guys. Because breakfast was such a big thing for us. We always wanted to get out there, have breakfast, and then go fishing. And uh, they, they said, you know, the, they'll service you guys. Okay, let's go. I jump in the boat with Luis, uh, Dan, CJ. They had them with uh, Luis's dad, Joka. And they're about 10 minutes behind us. And we get into this bay up through the upper uh, upper Nipissing, their west arm, and we're coming close to this restaurant. We had no GPS. We had no map. He literally told us what point to look for, and you're going to find this, you know, colored dock, and that's how you're going to know you're at this place. Okay, great. <laughs> we're getting through the bay, and the motor starts chuck, 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 chuck. I look back and it literally looks like the bloody thing's on fire. Smoke everywhere. <laughs> I look at Lewis, who's an absolute nut job. Okay. I look at him. I'm like, stop the boat. The boat's going the motor looks like it's going to catch fire. He puts, puts stops right away, hauls back on the throttle and the motor just dies. And there's oil residue all behind the boat. And I'm oh, like, no. Oh my God. Now Lewis is the one who is more technical when it comes to fixing shit. I'm terrible. Give me a knife. I'll make you something beautiful. Give me a screwdriver. I will know what to do with it other than shuck an oyster. So, you know, I'm looking at Lou and he's pulling the motor head, the, 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 the top of the motor off the cover. And this, this motor is from 1976. And he's looking at, and I'm literally breathing down his neck. I'm looking over his shoulder, trying to look at what the hell's going on. And he looks at me. He's like, what are you doing, man? He's like, what are you doing? Stop breathing on me. I said, do you need help, man? He's like, what are you going to do? He's like, grab your fishing rod and cast. I'm going to fix this. I said, are you sure? He's like, yeah, I'm going to figure this out. Don't look at me. Don't breathe down my neck. Grab your rod and cast. <laughs> Go do what you know how to do. I said, okay. So I grabbed my rod. I grabbed my Mojo Muskie, seven foot. And uh, I put on my, it was a, a chartreuse. I, I, I don't know if it was Strike King. I can't remember what it was, but it was a it was a giant spinner bait. Yeah, and he looks and he's like, "Cast that way." He literally pointed, and that's why the story is always going to be the story because he said, "Cast that way." <laughs> I casted that way because I was trying to stay out of his way. Soon as it hit the water, two or three cranks, bam, fish on. I'm like, "Oh my god, fish on!" I'm like, "Luis, fish on." He's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, no, no, fish on. And next thing you know, I can feel the power behind this fish. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't this isn't a pike. This this has got to be a muskie. I've never felt like again. There's no experience here. I've yeah. caught many muskie at this point. And I looked at him. I go, get the cradle. 
No, we had no net. We had a cradle. Get the cradle. This is a muskie. He's like, get the fuck out of here. I said, get the cradle. This is a muskie. Excuse me. He grabs the cradle. I'm fighting this fish. He's yelling at me, keep your rod tip up, tighten your drag, blah, blah, blah. This fish gets to the boat. And Steve, it was a trophy, brother, over 50. And I could tell you it was over 50 because we got it in the cradle. Luis scooped the fish. This cradle was 48 inches long, okay? The head was at the top of this cradle, and the tail was literally coming out of it, okay? <laughs> it, was four, it was a 52, at least a 52, okay? Out comes 10 minutes behind us, Joka, Hookset, Martins, and CJ, Showtime, Johnson, come flying over in their boat. We're waving them down, musky on, musky on. We had no cameras to take a picture, okay? The only the only camera we had is my buddy CJ had one of those cameras that you used to buy at Walmart that yeah, you had to wind up. The disposables, okay? And I see him get your camera ready, and, and he's winding it up. Joka gets close to the boat and he says in, in his Portuguese accent, Hey, Anthony, you ever hold a muskie before? <laughs> my adrenaline's running. And I'm like, nope. I'm like, but I'm going to do it. He's like, make sure you grab it by the gills and hold on for your life. <coughs> Excuse me. He's like, he's like, hold on for your life. I said, okay. I put my hand in. Lewis got the hook out. Now it's been sitting in the cradle, so it's got tons of energy. Okay. It's literally been sitting in the cradle, belly down. Yeah. Full of energy. I get myself, I hook him in the gills. I lift this son bitch right out of the water. He does one massive thrash head shake, thrashes my fingers. My fingers are bleeding and it pops in the water. I grab the tail with my nails. I got my nails into the back of this muskie because now it's in the water uh-huh. and it thrashes away and there she goes. She's gone. And I looked at Lewis and he looked at me. I almost bawled my friggin' eyes out. <laughs> I don't have any record of that fish other than Lewis looking at this thing in the cradle. And those guys were behind us. There's no picture. There's no evidence of this fishing existing except in my heart and in my brain and that is my best fishing story that i got for myself personally 100 percent. that is awesome and that's a fish <laughs> caught man that is and you know something oh man this the same thing okay so this is this is this is a down the same line so actually i just come back from the cottage today to 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 get together to do this and uh, up there right now i've got my oldest son rayburn and four of his buddies there's um uh they've got nicknames for themselves there's mo jack mo cow higgy and uh girl lads sounds like a hockey line it is it is that's exactly what it is (laughs) so anyway these boys are all 18 19 years old now but we've been doing this trip for four years now, the very first year I went up there with the boys and we go out fishing and, and on August the 15th at 9.03, we catch a muskie and these boys are, are over the top. Well, so that was four years ago. Now, just listen to this. Like this is, this is uncanny. The next four years, including last night and on the 15th, 
So every year on the 15th of August, on the same spot within 20 minutes, we've caught a muskie. No way. And every one of them has caught, each one of them have caught one of them. So they've all caught muskies now. The biggest one was, I think it was about 48 or 49 inches. And then the one we got this year was 41 inches. But you, you talk about, um, taking people out and, and seeing the enjoyment and all of this stuff. These guys are just hooked now. And they're just hooked. That's the, that's, that's, that's what happened to me, man. You, You get that one fish, you get that one experience and you just fall in love with it. And, and the boys, they must have been, I mean, catching a muskie, the boys must have been losing their mind. Oh, for sure. They're losing their mind. It's <laughs> ridiculous. I got, they've got videos and pictures and then they're sending them to all their buddies and, yeah. you know, and to have it happen every year. It happens every it's year. Incredible. And last year I was over at the lodge visiting with, uh, with friends of mine from Texas and it's August 15th, you know, and I'm, I'm having such a great time with, with my Texan friends, but. I, I said to, to Ty and Sonia and, and uh, Fred and Deb and Joe, I said, hey, guys, listen, I got to go. The boys are over on the island. They're waiting to go fishing. And, you know, and I told them last year and the year before last, we caught a muskie, blah, blah, blah. So it was as fast as this. I left, got to the island, my island, picked the boys up at 830 drove out to the spot, got there for quarter to nine, put the lines in and within five minutes, wow, bang, got one. And then like these boys, I think it's the positivity. <laughs> like yeah, they believe, yeah. they believe that they're going to get one. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, man, it's all about being positive because now, you know, fast forward for me back with my story, I've caught hundreds of muskie and uh, I learned very quickly how to hold the muskie for a picture without losing my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. And Don't get the them fish. in the gills, just on that gill. Oh, plate. oh <laughs> boy. And, um, and that's, that's, that's cool to hear. It's, it's cool to hear how, you know, the boys are now hooked and like CJ, Daniel and Lewis, those are my four, those are my four hockey line mates right there. Yeah. We all got nicknames too. And um, you know, without that part of my life, and I, I'm sure I speak for them as well. And this might go for your your kids as well. Like it, without that part of my life, I don't think I would have um, anything to look forward to. Um, unfortunately, like I said, I've, I've worked my brains out my whole career. I have my beautiful family, um, which I cherish every moment that I have. But getting away, getting away um, with my four friends that I grew up with, catching muskies, catching, you know, shooting deer now and, and, and or, or, bird hunting, whatever it is that we get to do together yeah. uh, in the outdoors is just nothing is comparable. And I, I cherish every single moment that I go out there and, and I'm always looking forward to the next trip. And I, and, and that's why, you know, with this eating wild podcast and with your podcast and joining this team, we get to share it with people and, yeah. and it's, it's been so positive so far. And, uh, I can't wait to, uh, to keep doing this. It's going to be great. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Well, listen, um, I really, really appreciate you uh, joining me on uh, Diaries today, and uh, and I'm sure that everybody's going to love uh, love listening to it. And uh, I really can't wait for the next opportunity that we get to sit down and uh, and talk. And uh, I think 
um, we're going to have to make a point of, um, of doing, of doing either eating wild or diaries of a lodge owner live from the upper French river. Cause oh, I have wait. a place there. Oh, <laughs> we're going to, not only are we going to go there, but I'm, you just, you just hand me a knife. And I'm going to tell you right now, you guys go do all the fishing, whatever you bring back, you just sit back, get your guitar, light a fire and let me put on a show. Cause that's what I'm going to do. And I can't wait to do it for you oh, guys. Oh, that would be fantastic. But you're going to have to come fishing with us. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, I watch, I watch you guys on TV on Saturday mornings, and sometimes I'm just like, I can never be like these guys because you guys are, are incredible fishermen, and I, I, I feel like I've been a weekend warrior my whole life, and again, spending all these years targeting muskie has always been our downfall because it doesn't allow you to expand into catching your pickerel and bass and everything else that we're missing out on. So it's now only the past few years that um, me and the boys have been getting into bass fishing and we've been getting into pickerel fishing because, you know, especially doing a short lunch, not going to eat a muskie, right? Yeah, that's we're not true. Eat muskie. So um, yeah, man, I, I love what you guys do and, and, and I'd love to do it with you guys anytime you let me know and I'll be there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Smash. I'm 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 so appreciative of this, and uh, that concludes uh, another episode of Diaries of a Lodge Owner, folks. Uh, hit that like button and uh, write a review. You know uh, it uh, it and and people ask me how do I write a review, and I and I and and honestly, it's been difficult. I had to actually go and look for it. So to to write a review, you need to go on to the Apple uh, Podcast. And where you see all of the different um, episodes, scroll to the bottom of those, and there's a small little uh, tab that you can touch that says "Write a Review." You know, I had a, I, I didn't, I didn't even know how to to do it. So that's how you do it, folks. And I'd really appreciate it if you if you went uh, went down there and and uh, let me know what you think. And not only that, check out Eating Wild. It's a fantastic uh, uh, podcast. And, and if you're already there, leave Antonio and the boys a review. Thanks again, folks. Have a great day. I'm a good old boy. Never meaning no harm. I'll be all you ever saw. Been reeling in the hog since the day I was born. Bending my rod. Stretching my line Someday I might own a lodge And that'd be fine I'll be making my way The only way I know how Working hard and sharing the north With all of my pals Well, I'm a good old boy I bought a lodge and lived my dream and now I'm here talking about how life can be as good as it seems. Yeah.